This is Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We try to keep the name similar, so if you just say the first name, you're going to get it right. We are going to be talking about Nick Cordero, the Hamilton actor, who thankfully, wonderfully, has come out of his coma. Cheats today. People cheating the government of money. We're going to be talking about NFL, lots of other stuff. Stick around. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. As you may have heard in the news, last night, Nick Cordero woke up came out of his unconsciousness, came out of his coma. And joining us to talk about this is his mother, Leslie. Leslie, glad you could join us today for this. This is this is a great part of the story. Thank you for being here. You're welcome, Scott. Uh, there was, I mean, as I say, it, it's it's great that this is a uh, an uplifting song and a good feeling today. Fair to say that there was a good chance that this might have not turned out as well as we hoped it would and as it has? Oh, for heaven's sakes, I think it's a miracle that Nick's alive. I mean, everything I'm reading, everything I'm hearing, he had a very, very slim chance of survival. So this is astounding. Uh, let's let's take a few minutes here and just recap this story because some people may not know. A lot of people have been following. I know that because I've been hearing from a lot of them, but uh, some people don't. Uh, he went to hospital March 31st in Los Angeles, he thought did. it was pneumonia. Mm-hmm. Pick up the story from there, what happened after that. All right, that. he went at the previous Friday. He had gone to an urgent care center in Los Angeles. They had told him he had pneumonia and sent him home with medication. When he did not get any better over the weekend, and, and actually his breathing became very labored, he went to emergency at Cedars-Sinai. Uh, they immediately put him on oxygen. That would be March 31st. Um, and then the next day, he was taken to the ICU, still on oxygen, and April 1st, uh, they put a ventilator in. So there's only a 70%, there's only a 30% chance of surviving after that, apparently. Um, so that in itself is pretty astounding. From there, he seemed to be doing, um, you know, going through the regular stuff that you do when you have COVID-19. And they were actually talking about taking out the ventilator uh, the Easter weekend, and instead he was hit with a secondary infection which uh, spiked up his fever, dropped his blood pressure, and stopped his heart. So they had to resuscitate him uh, and put him on an ECMO machine, which literally bypasses the functions of the heart and the lungs. So at this point, he's on a ventilator to breathe. He's on this ECMO um, to take over the functions of those two organs, and then he had to be put on dialysis as well. So he is totally on life support at this point. So that um, had its ups and downs. Uh, an ECMO machine uh, can cause blood clots um, and did, as well as they're now seeing blood clots are something that you see with COVID-19 patients in extreme cases, and Nick seems to be extreme. So after several surgeries to try and relieve the blood clots and to increase circulation in his right leg, they finally had to take the leg off just above the knee. So that might have been around, I don't know, the 18th, I think, of April. Since then, he's uh, discovered to have another uh, two infections, actually. It looks like another ammonia and a fungal infection in his lungs. And his lungs are very badly damaged. It's like they he was smoking for 50 years, and Nick is a non-smoker. So um, that they will hide infections inside those holes in his lungs and, and potentially abscesses, etc. So they're constantly sweeping out his lungs. 
so that's, you know, he's also had a uh, pacemaker put in, a temporary pacemaker has been put in as well. So it, I could go on and on, and I don't even understand all the medical terms. So it has been an ordeal, to say the least. And it seems as though uh, there were moments along the way when things sounded somewhat positive, uh, but you've just listed off a, a litany, I mean, a, a medical school student's guide to dealing with this, I suppose, of everything that could possibly go wrong. It seems that any time something good happened for the last six weeks, there was always something just looming around the corner waiting to go badly. Yes, the next shoe would drop. We had the uh, we had this wonderful ICU nurse speak to my myself and my other two children, um, and she said, "In ICU, it's two steps forward and one step back. You can you have to focus on the next twelve hours." So that really helped us. But we came to understand that if we got anything that sounded positive, we were going to get hit quickly, and that has been the case. There, um, there have been a lot of, uh, well, certainly there's been, and we'll talk about it in a second, the, the outpouring and the interest around the world for this. I mean, he may have gone to Westdale and grown up at Westdale High School and all those, but I mean, this is now a world story. Um, but there's been a lot of comments on social media before we get into the really good stuff, suggesting a couple things. One, that this isn't really COVID because these things don't sound like it's the response, the, the, the results of COVID. And two, that he had some sort of underlying conditions, health issues going into this that led to all this. Either of those true? No. He was tested positive for COVID. And the more and more I'm reading, yes, it does very sound very much like COVID, what they're experiencing in extreme cases. Um, and he had no underlying um, health issues. Period. So no diabetes, no heart issues, no, no asthma, no. nothing like that. Nothing. Um, well, okay. And, and that's good that you clarify that. Cause again, that, that seems to be a recurring theme. People don't want to believe that a healthy 41 year old could end up like this. I know you feel vulnerable. I, I get that. I know. The, um, the, the great part of this story and, and somehow in the midst of all this, there is a pretty remarkable part of this story is, as I mentioned a moment ago, the public, I, I, I mean, outpouring is not too big a, a statement, I don't think. I mean, it's been a public outpouring um, every day. Hundreds of people, probably thousands of people play that song we came in with and danced to it at six o'clock. Stevie Van Zant, the guitarist from Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, played it every night on his Sirius Satellite Station. Broadway casts have played that song and other songs mm-hmm. and put it on Zoom. And um, a GoFundMe page has raised over $500,000. Mm-hmm. I, I can't believe that all of this hasn't stunned you a little bit. Yes. <laughs> Let's just say, I mean, I live in Hamilton. Yes, it stuns me. Um, uh, Nick knows Stevie Van Zandt. He's uh, worked with him, actually, in the past. Um, and, of course, Nick's wife has uh, this huge following on Instagram, and she's been updating her, her people. And uh, so, yeah, it's been astounding. Just astounding, the number, the amount of support that has come for Nick. And for other COVID survivors as well, patient zero just code rockied. And so um, there's been a huge outpour of of, um, support for him as well. So I think we're going to see more and more as as the survivors are leaving the hospital. That's a phrase that you just said that a lot of people are not going to know, uh, although they'll probably hear it more. Code rocky, what is that? That means that's when a COVID-19 uh, survivor leaves the hospital. So that's what our big thing is. We, we need to get a code rocky. 
patient zero um, just had his code Rocky, and he was the first patient to be admitted to uh, a California hospital, or I think it's Los Angeles hospital. Um, and he just, after 64 days, he's just been released. So. Let me go back to that thing about the outpouring for a moment again. And some people mm-hmm. listening are, are going to say, really? I, I, I didn't know about this. And and I think one of the interesting parts, there's, I don't know how many Hamiltonians go down to Broadway productions every year. I can't imagine the number is huge. And so I'm wondering, do, do you think a lot of people around here outside the theater community knew Nick before this? Or has this been the thing, weirdly enough, that has introduced a lot of people in this city to him? I don't really know. I mean, I've had a lot of people reach out to me, and some of them say, I saw him doing Rock of Ages in Detroit all those years ago, mm. or I've been down to Broadway and I've seen him. So I've heard a lot of that. I mean, he did a lot of community theater, Hamilton Theater, Inc. He, um, he did shows for Lou Sampronia and Theater Aquarius, and he also did lots of lots of work with David Daler uh, growing up. So... He certainly um, knew a lot of people in theater in Hamilton, absolutely. And I am sure there are other. And, of course, you know, both his father and I taught high school. So, you know, people that we know and former students of ours are all aware of Nick for sure. Hamilton is a very big, a very small, big city. Yes, it is. Everybody knows everybody in Hamilton. Or knows someone who knows someone. Yes. And, And even if you don't, I really do believe, and again, nobody wanted you or him or Amanda or anyone to go through this, but the the sheer number of twists and turns and ups and downs and everything mm-hmm. else, um, I, I don't want to, I mean, this sounds so cheap and I, I don't mean that, but it's been a soap opera for real. And, and oh, yeah. I think there's been an awful lot of people who have followed it and become emotionally invested just because now you've got this underdog to root for. Yeah. Absolutely. I believe that. Um, And every mother out there is, you know, his heart is broken, you know, just thinking about what if it was one of my children or that kind of thing. I've had so much food arrive at my door and people just standing there in tears because, you know, it's very hard not to personalize that. You know, what if it was mine? So, um, yeah, people are. Have you driven there? Have you driven by Westdale High School? There's a sign up right on on the school sign that says "Wake Up Nick" with it, the but hashtag. I've had a photograph sent to me, yes, and I've sent it down to LA. <laughs> so Amanda has seen it for sure. Okay, so we for six weeks you're going through this, and mm-hmm. every day is an adventure. And again, I don't think mm-hmm. that's an overstatement. Um, nope. And yesterday you come home, and there is a phone call waiting for you. Um, tell me about that phone call because th- this is where the story actually gets really good. Well, actually, um, I was I was out. Uh, I don't know what I was doing, dropping my car off, I think. And I got back and my daughter-in-law, Amanda Klutz uh, from Los Angeles, had texted me and said, um, I have posted, we have a, a WhatsApp group that a bunch of us are on, all her family, all of our family and cl- close, close friends. And she said, I have posted a recording of the latest doctor's um, call. Listen to it. So I got in the house and I went on the WhatsApp and I listened to the recording and it was really wonderful. It really was great. It's the best news we've heard. And yes, he's woken up. I had suspicions that we thought he was as of Mother's Day. We thought so, but not until the doctor says you can't 
you know, you can't assume anything until you've heard it from the doctor. But the rest of the call was all about steps moving forward, not what was going wrong and what still had to be fixed, but steps moving forward and talking about what the future could look like. So that in itself was pretty exciting as well. You listened to this call, though, a few times, I understand, just to make sure that you had heard correctly. I mean, with what you've been through, you want to make sure you've actually understood that you've heard this right. Yes. And I mean, it's difficult to hear the doctor. It's being recorded. Uh, So you really wanted to to make sure that you'd heard it correctly. Absolutely. And then, of course, I had to talk to my daughter and my my other son, and we all had to discuss it at length and confirm. (laughs) The... um... I, I'm not going to ask how you feel, uh, but <laughs> but when but but when you've been through what you've been through, is it a sense of excitement when you hear that he's awake, or relief, or cautious optimism, or thankfulness, or 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 can you put a a title on what the sense is that when you've been through all this, what it, what what goes through your mind? Well, I have tried to be positive and optimistic through the entire thing because it really was not something I could even imagine, a world without Nick in it. Um, but And I bet there was always that, you know, even if he does survive, what if he doesn't wake up in the back of your head? Um, so it was tremendous relief, absolutely, and excitement. Um, you don't realize how you're reacting until you get some really good news and it seems like you can breathe again and you can function again and and maybe get something done in a day. I mean, I think we've been living in a state of paralysis for the last six weeks. Uh, He hasn't talked yet. No, he's too weak. Oh my goodness. He's so weak. He can't even shut his own mouth. He's so weak. So opening and shutting his eyes is is huge for him. And so I would assume then that he also, um, and this is a tricky part, he's not been told about his leg yet. Oh no. He's the only one in the world, it seems, who doesn't know. No. Which is, which is, I mean, you're, it's you're delighted topic. that he's alive, mm-hmm. but it's, I'm you know, it's finding out at the same time. <laughs> how, well, how do you, th- I mean, uh, you don't know how he's going to respond, but uh, his attitude generally, is he someone who's pretty easygoing that would say, well, I'll deal with this because I'm here, or is this going to be crushing to him? I think initially it'll be crushing, but Nick is resilient. Um, and he's probably one of the bravest people I know. When I think about his life and what he's done, like just so outside the box in terms of his career and the risks he's taken, um, I think it'll be crushing initially. I, I think he won't even be able to wrap his head around it originally. But I think that he will come to accept it. And I think he will eventually, you know, it, it will become part of who he is. If his next teacher moving forward, that's for sure. Well, but it's he will uh, come out on top of that for sure, and it is a great news story. I mean, it's a great story that this is where things are now because, as you said right off the top, the alternative uh, was horrendous, and this is uh, this is a much better. I was going to say a better ending. It's not really a better ending. There's still a yeah. lot to go, and a yeah. lot more of this story to be told. Which I hope one day he will when he comes back home and uh, stops in the studio and can tell it himself. Um, just before I let you I go, don't Leslie, think one he other remembers th- any of this <laughs> Well, maybe not. It'll be a short. It'll be a short story. Yeah. Um, one other thing, and as I let you go, that I thought was really beautiful about this, um, yesterday was a special day for Nick for a whole other reason, too. Yes, yesterday was his uh, father who passed away um, before years this summer. It was his birthday. So, and his son, and Nick's son is named, his middle name is named after his father, yeah, so they Elvis were close. So there's a, yeah. 
it is uh it is such great news that this is what we're talking about today and not the alternative and uh, leslie cordero really appreciate you taking some minutes to join us today thanks for doing this you're welcome bye you're listening to the scott thompson show podcast on 900 chml i'm sure everyone listening has heard of the canada emergency response benefit the cerb is what people are calling it Uh, Essentially, what it does, it's a fund from the federal government that pays people $500 a week for up to four months if you made at least $5,000 in 2019. And the good news of this, I think, is, you know, people would say that's pretty obvious. It keeps people solvent in a difficult time when a lot of people are now out of work due to no fault of their own. The bad news, that would be, I think a lot of people also would say, the opportunity for some people to milk the system which is surely happening. There is one report saying up to 200,000 claims have been red flagged as questionable. Now, here's where this gets interesting. What is happening with those 200,000 claims that now people, bureaucrats who are looking at this are saying, wait a second, that doesn't seem right. What's happening with those? Nothing, nothing, nothing. In fact, according to the National Post, Employment and Social Development Canada sent a memo telling government workers to do nothing about suspicious claims. Don't stop the payment. Don't send a note on to someone. Just process it and send it out. Process it and send it out. Who cares? We'll, we'll try and figure it out later. To me, this sounds a little bit crazy. I'm guessing also it may sound a little bit crazy to Aaron Woodrick, who is with the Taxpayers Federation of Canada, National Director of the Taxpayer, or Federal Director of the Taxpayers Federation of Canada. He joins me now. Aaron, thanks for doing this today. Hey, thanks for having me, Scott. So uh, let's just go through some background on this. First of all, we all want people who are who have paid taxes, who have been taxpayers, have contributed to the government. We want them to get their money in tough times now, right? I mean, no one's against that. Yeah, no, everybody recognizes this is an emergency and everybody recognizes that the government had to act pretty quick here. So I think a lot of people are cutting them some slack uh, about not being perfect. Uh, but as you've already mentioned, you know, it, I think it is alarming to a lot of people that uh, where there is abuse, we would generally expect the government to try and do something about it when they find that there are people that they suspect are, are taking advantage of the system. Right. And we also don't want uh, bureaucratic red tape tying everything up. So any claim, I suppose, that anything could possibly be wrong, I mean, I don't know how you handle it, but if you've got 200,000 claims and you've got government workers who are alert enough to say, wait, there's something wrong with these, it seems, I don't know, logical or hopeful that something would be done. Yeah, you know, to me, it's just a question of changing the order of the steps rather than not having the steps at all. Uh, in normal times, you don't let the money out the door until you're, you're, you're sure that the person on the other end is, it qualifies. This time, we can't afford to wait for that, so maybe send the money. But boy, if you've got bureaucrats that are saying there's something fishy on this file, we should look into it. There's nothing that's stopping the government from following up after the fact. And when you look at the scope of the problem, I mean, if, if all of those cases were in fact fraud, we're talking $400 million a month in terms of money that's being wasted uh, going to people that uh, that are not entitled to it. Uh, the memo that apparently the National Post reports on says the department has suspended compliance and enforcement, which would allow for these things to be checked up on that. See, I'm with you. I, these are difficult times. And so, yeah, get the money out there. But if you've got a bureaucrat who says, wait, there's something really wrong with this or really smelly about this one, Where's the downside in saying, here's a system we can put in place to send a note, Aaron, and say, hey, Bob, that we just sent the money to, when we're all done with this, let's go back and check on Bob. Uh, where's, the, where's the problem with that? 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that there is one. I mean, no one is demanding perfection from the government here, but we are demanding that if the government sees something wrong uh, and they know that, that we would expect them to try and do something about it. And not only are they not doing that, they've explicitly told their own employees to do nothing. Yeah, and as you point out, I mean, the the math here, if this was a a small amount of money in the grand scheme of things, I suppose you say, well, you know, we don't even know if we have enough staff to do this. We don't know how we could enforce this, so whatever. There's a very good chance my math is wrong here because I am terrible at math, Aaron, so I apologize. You said 400 million, but if there were only 100,000 cases, forget 200,000, let's take it in half and say half of those people are not dishonest. 100,000 cases times $500 a week, times 16 weeks, which is the four months, that's $800 million potentially of bad money going out the door. That is not insignificant. No, it isn't. And remember, this is just one of many programs that the government has had to come up with very quickly. And again, I'm not expecting perfection from them when they roll them out. But as they go along, as they learn ways that, that, that people are gaming the system, if they, if they find loopholes, they need to be fixing these things as they go. It's a bit like putting a ship out to sea while you're still working on it. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying they have to wait until everything's ready to go. But boy, they need to spend more time fixing things up because I think a lot of people do not have patience for uh, abuses and taking advantage uh, of our generosity, especially at a time like this. Well, I, I, yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. And, and the other part about this is, though, is it just sends a message, to me anyway, that the government is playing rather loose with our money. I mean, we've paid these tax dollars and ultimately what we go into debt or deficit, we are going to have to pay these back somehow. I would want someone to be a little more careful. If I was loaning this to my neighbor to pay his mortgage and then I saw him come home driving a new Porsche, I mean, you know, I'm probably going to want to have someone taking stock of this and being a little more careful with my money. This this just seems, I don't know, careless almost or, or... I don't know, callous? That's maybe not the right word. Loose. Yeah, it just seems rather indifferent, right? I don't think there are, you know, most Canadians, as I say, no one begrudges emergency help to people who need it right now. We are in a, we are in a very unique situation. We've never had it before. We understand that we're having to spend money now. We don't have much choice. But there is a very low tolerance, and I've, I've heard, had phone calls and emails from people who see the sort of thing you're talking about, abuses in their community. And for the government to just shrug and say, well, you know, nothing we can do about it. I don't think that a lot of people are going to be able to swallow that. Do you ever get the sense that we're talking about such unfathomably enormous sums of money with the payouts and the deficits that we're now accruing and accruing and, and all these things that the feeling almost is, well, what's another few hundred million? I mean, we're already in for, a hundred billion dollars. Who cares about another one? If, you know, as long as we get this money out, who cares? Do you get the sense it's almost seen as chump change now in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, I think that's the risk we want. And frankly, that's been the story of my life as someone who argues about, you know, being prudent with tax dollars for a living. When you get, I mean, people understand small things. They understand when something's expensive, an item at the grocery store, if it was double or triple, that would seem a lot. But for the average person, you or I, you know, what's the difference between a billion or 10 billion or a hundred billion? It's all just sums beyond our own personal experience. But I will say, you know, after this is over, uh, people are going to feel it directly in terms of pressure on the services that government provides that we all rely on. So the less we spend now, the easier it's going to make later. And that's why government needs to be careful with every dollar going out the door. 
Yeah, I don't know if anyone else does this. One of my favorite moves is when I spend some money and then I come home and my wife says, how much did you spend? I'll say, oh, it was 500 bucks. And she'll, you know, the eyes will bug out. And then I say, no, it was only 50. Because it seems so much better when it's, you know, when you've, when you've set them up for a huge amount. And so I, I kind of get the feeling here. It's just, it's a small amount compared to everything else. So, you know, what's, what's the problem? I, I, the other thing is here is the sense that the government is showing indifference towards money going out that could be stolen. And once again, I think Aaron, you and I are both on the same page. Get the money out there. Just have a have a paper trail of the red flagged ones so we can go back and look at this. Um, because if, if the government is this indifferent and if, if cheating the government really isn't that big a problem, why would I pay my taxes at the end of this? Surely I should be allowed to play fast and loose with the rules a bit because I've decided that I want to. And why should you come after me? Yeah, there's no surer way to have uh, the public lose confidence in government than for for the public to be convinced that the government doesn't care about their money. You know, we all pay our taxes because we expect good things in return for them, value for money. And when government starts to waste it or doesn't seem to care, you know, when people are stealing it, uh, that really sort of undermines the deal that we make, which is we pay our taxes and then we get uh, we get things in return for it. Okay, so the real question, though, and there are people listening right now, I guarantee you, who are saying, guys, come on, uh, lay off. When this is all said and done, they will go back and they will sort this out. And so lay off. The government's doing what they're doing. Fair enough. If you believe that when all this is said and done, every single claim is going to be reviewed and checked and investigated, and the people who are gaming the system are going to be caught, do you believe Truly, do you believe when all this is done and we are trying to get everything back in order, do you believe there is going to be a full accounting of every payment that went out the door? I, I don't think there will be. And for the simple reason that the arguments gonna, the government's going to make similar arguments that they're making now. They're going to say, oh, there's too many. There were 10 million applications. We're short on money now. We don't have the time to go through all of this. And I, I think that's why now there's, there's nothing stopping. I can tell you, Scott, up here in Ottawa, there are a lot of people in government are working very hard. I give them credit for that. But there are others that, uh, that are at home and they're not able to work. And I don't see any issue with them being redeployed to try and, and assist uh, you know, groups like Revenue Canada and make sure that uh, these, these cases of fraud, uh, potential fraud, are being investigated. Well, and even if they did, I mean, even if they did, it seems like whether it's redeployed or if you just want to go and investigate all this, it's a massive, massive amount of work because it won't just, I don't think, Aaron, I've not done this. I'm not an accountant. I can't imagine it's a two or three minute process. You're talking hours and maybe days for each one. Uh, that means more staff. That means more costs. That means more salaries. And as you say, with the deficit and the debt now, do we really want to be bringing in way more government employees that cost us even more money? to investigate money that perhaps we could have saved by checking on it in the first place. Yes, and you know, I think the fact that this story is now out in the open, it's now an, an open secret that the government is, is ignoring fraud, I think that's even more dangerous. Because now now this is out in the public realm, people who, who might not have uh, abused the system, who might want to, now they see that it's risk-free to do it. So I think the government is it's really incumbent upon them to, to take some steps to show that they are, they are not going to stand for it and that they are going to try and make sure that our taxpayer money is, is, is collected. Do you believe there will be a defense? Like, I'm, I'm sure there will be some people who will be caught at the end of this because you're going to want to make sure you show that you're doing something. Is it going to be a defense if Bob gets caught and he did take advantage of this and Bob says, wait a second, there are 25 of us who have been charged and you have a, a thing here that says there's up to 200,000. Why are you picking on me? Where are the other charges? Could that be a defense? 
I don't know that would stand up. I mean, there is no, there's nothing in law that says, uh, you know, just because other people are breaking the law that you are not going to be held accountable for it. So I would caution people, um, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit like when you're audited, when you do your taxes, right? Um, not every person who files taxes every year is audited. If you're audited and you're caught having cheated, you have to pay a fine. And so I think this, the same is certainly going to apply in this situation. I'm going to ask you to be a mind reader for a second here. Why do you think, because again, we've established, I think, that it getting the money out would be important, but it wouldn't have been all that difficult to just make a note of who we suspect. We don't know, but who we suspect. Why do you think that wouldn't have been done? I think at the time, the government was probably concerned. Um, they didn't want the system to slow down. They, if they had not made that signal, they were worried that uh, the money wouldn't get out fast enough and people wouldn't be able to pay their rent and stuff. But, you know, what's clear from that story uh, and from the leak is that the, the notes are already on the file. Uh, you know, bureaucrats are making these notes, but they've been ordered not to pass them on to be investigated. That's the part I don't understand. That doesn't seem to make sense. And I really hope that the government uh, changes direction on that. I mean, look, I... And e- you could have set up one email server, I suppose, and just say, anyone you're sending out here, if you have questions, just send an email with the name and the case number, and we'll get to it after. But at least then we have a track record that we can begin to explore these. I, I, I Frankly, I just don't understand it. I get getting the money out there. I just don't understand not doing anything to keep track of these ones. It, it makes no sense to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit beside myself. I was surprised to hear it. Um, but I mean, the, the good news is, uh, Scott, that the only reason we know about this is uh, that there was a conscientious uh, government employee uh, who, who leaked this, yeah. recognizing that, uh, you know what, uh, this, is, this is not a good use of our money. And, you know, we really need to create some pressure to make sure government changes direction. Aaron Woodrick um, from the Taxpayers Federation of Canada. Really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks a lot, Scott. Interesting comments at Doug Ford's press conference. Three things really that stand out to me, uh, two of them education-wise, one of them not education-wise. I'll start with the latter, that being the question about golf courses. There's been rumors golf courses would be opening up potentially this weekend. No clear answer on that. Uh, Doug Ford was non-committal, was not getting pinned down on that one. There have been rumblings that this is the weekend they were going to say you can go ahead and may still Although you would think that even if that's announced tomorrow, which is Thursday, that's going to be a bit of a turnaround to get those ready. Although that said, golf course owners have said they can do this very quickly. So we will see. Tune in tomorrow. The other two things, both to do with education. Uh, One, here's what Doug Ford had to say about what janitors and maintenance workers and other education workers, not teachers, I don't think. uh, Well, here's what education workers are able to do now. We put out a call to our education workers to come to the aid of our hospital staff, our long-term care homes, our retirement homes and group homes, our homeless shelters and women's shelters, and other congregate care facilities. And our friends, the response has been overwhelming. Our school boards, our trustee associations, and union representatives have all come together to support this framework. It's an interesting idea. There's no question about that. I don't have all the answers, as I don't think anyone does, about what this truly means. I am assuming that what they're talking about is people who work in schools, as I say, in maintenance or janitors or other people can come in and do the exact same thing in seniors' homes or long-term care homes or whatever. I I, I think it would be 
crazy to think that somehow they're going to do something other than their skill set. I don't think that was made perfectly clear. That is an assumption on my part. I, I, I'm, I would bet all the money I have that we're not going to be expecting people who don't have skills in certain things to be doing learning things on the fly right now and working in long-term care homes. Nonetheless, that could take some of the pressure off and considering how much cleaning and wiping down and everything apparently needs to be done right now, that could be a help. The other thing, probably of more interest to a lot of people because they're at home right now listening to us with their kids saying, when do the kids go back to school? Well, here's what Education Minister Stephen Lecce had to say. Uh, parents could absolutely expect an outcome. We plan to do this by early next week. And really the reason why is because we're looking to updated modeling from the Chief Medical Officer of Health and the command table. So if you are at home right now and you used to have long hair, but you've pulled it all out because the kids have been driving you nuts, you're going to get an answer by next week about what is going to happen. At least that's what we think. What is going to happen with the rest of the school year? We're, we're approaching the witching hour though. And I think that's why the answer is going to come next week. We are approaching the witching hour. We can't go much longer without a decision about go or no go. This is now getting to be like the space shuttle or the rocket program. Go or no go. You can't wait until June and then send a bunch of people back to schools for July and August. Can you? I don't know. But it an answer is coming. Now, we will get some more details about this, I hope. I want to bring in MPP Sam Osterhoff, Niagara um, West and uh, parliamentary assistant to the Minister of Education. Uh, Sam, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me, Scott. So uh, we heard a number of things in that press conference. I, I know you were listening and I know uh, you know what was going on even beforehand. And, and a big one for a lot of people, which ties into uh, to your work, a, a very big one is when do schools get going again or do schools get going again? And um, Stephen Lecce, Minister of Education, said that the other announcement about workers, janitors and maintenance workers being able to help at other places now should not be taken as a sign that schools are not going to reopen. It's kind of hard, though, not to see the two as being a little connected, because if they're out of the schools, the schools are not going to operate, correct? Well, I do understand, uh, you know, the the inference there, and and I get that people uh, definitely want to have final answers when it comes to how the school year is going to be turning out but we're really trying to make sure we're doing our due diligence when it comes to uh, engaging with health professionals with education partners and making sure that we're making the right decision for for the students and families uh, and educators of our our province so uh, we're not you know able to say at this point that the, the school year won't continue i do understand of course there's a lot of people who uh, are waiting anxiously for final word and and we make sure that we're always continuing those conversations so i know news will be coming in the next uh, week or so or uh or, or a little bit longer to make sure that we have some certainty for families that are depending on uh, on this uh, yeah, i'm guessing you're probably not going to tell me the complete answer to this uh the specific answer but do you know does the government at this point have a drop dead date when schools would have to get started if we're going to have kids back in schools is there a date set even if you don't want to tell me the date or you can, I'm happy if you do. Um, but is there a date set that we would have to be back in schools by to make this work? Well, one of the things that uh, we have to make sure we're doing is, is taking the numbers as they come, right? So we've seen uh, over the last couple of weeks, thankfully, quite a drop in, in the number of cases that have surged uh, or sorry, that, that hasn't surged. So we're thankful for those uh, progress being made, but we want to make sure that that continues. And so the Ministry of Education is working with the Chief Medical Officer of Health. And I know the Minister... Uh, is very closely watching what's going on to see 
uh, what would be doable. But we, of course, take first and foremost the health and safety of students very, very seriously, and we won't do anything that puts them in danger. But uh, time is ticking, like you've said, and uh, we want to make sure we make the right decision and consider all the options. So we're gathering feedback and and talking to our partners in education as well as uh, the health professionals. How um, widespread are the ideas that have been thrown out about what you could do for school? I mean, can you, for example, has it been discussed whether kids could actually go all the way through July and August or other things? I mean, when you sit, is it a brainstorming session or are there very specific um, limitations on what can be discussed as far as ideas? Yeah, you know, I don't, I I appreciate, you know, all, all the interest in it and all the curiosity. I have to be frank, you know, the minister uh, and and cabinet and the chief medical officers teams are the ones that are are really working on that. Uh, the minister and I speak regularly as well about some of the options. There's a lot of different uh, a lot of different options. I, I mean, we look at what's happened just in the last couple of months. If you'd told me two and a half months ago or three months ago that we would be doing uh, education across the province and every single school board online, I, I wouldn't have believed you, frankly. And so we've seen how quickly things can change, and we have to be ready to adapt. And that's also, why today's announcement about ensuring that, uh, that that educational workers are able to assist in long-term care homes and retirement homes and women's shelters and the like, uh, pending you know local approval of those agreements, is really important because it shows that we're able to uh, we're able to move as a society and as, as a province to deal with the challenges that come up. And the big reason we've seen such a good decline in the numbers is because 14.5 million people across this province have done the right thing. And uh, we're seeing the results of that. So we're going to stay uh, stay very closely attuned to what's going on and make sure whatever we do is done thoughtfully based off of evidence and science and uh, done with the best interest of students in mind. The people who now, and you tie in the other part that uh, that was mentioned today about the opportunity for these school workers to volunteer, I mean, paid volunteer, because they're still being paid, but to go and redirect their attention to nursing homes or long-term care. Are these people right now who are currently doing tasks at schools or are these people who because the schools are closed down are not working right now therefore they can go and put their efforts towards that that aren't already being put somewhere else well the broader uh, public service workforce does have pockets of available employees due to the closures of schools and colleges universities and other agencies uh, and we've seen that certain sectors such as long-term care and other congregate care settings are facing critical and immediate staffing shortages. So we've asked the broader public serv- sector workforce to voluntarily redeploy their services. So of course, there are um, there are, are labor considerations and all of this, but I know all the major uh, teachers unions and educational workers unions have uh, agreed with the need to ensure that where that need is greatest, this, these, uh, these workers can be redeployed. Uh, and of course, we know that so many of our teachers are doing fantastic work and, and trying to support students at, in uh, the at-home learning uh, experience as much as possible. But there are also those who um, are, are not being utilized to the extent that they are in a, tradi- in a traditional school setting. And so we want to make sure that we're uh, making sure uh, they're able to contribute as well where needed. Do you have any idea of what level of participation you're expecting? I'm not, I'm not completely sure. I know that we've seen a huge amount of people coming forward 
offering to help just from the general population. I know when we put out a call for nurses, I believe something like 12,000 different nurses in the space of a week uh, who were retired or who were no longer working uh, came forward to answer that call. And, and I expect to see thousands of educational workers as well, because I know that so many of them uh, want to do what's right to, when it comes to supporting their communities. And and uh, many that I've spoken with uh, want to want to give back to their community in, in these types of ways as well. So I hope to see very high uh, very high high turnout, but I know uh, I don't know what a exact percentage would be because, of course, as well, there is still uh, the regular work that they're doing uh, on top of that. Now, last thing before we let you go, um, if schools could open, and again, we know that the answer is coming down the road. We don't know what it's going to be yet. There's a lot of people in a lot of different jobs who are still concerned about going out of their house or going to an office to work. If schools were to open, could teachers refuse to go to school because they say they're still concerned about COVID? Or does this have to work where if we decide that schools are open, we have to be able to say, no, you must go to work because it is 100% safe? Well, I know that the minister is working, like I said, with labor partners, uh, with uh, the medical officer of health and with with educational advisory teams as well to make sure that we're doing uh, everything that is done uh, in, in proper order. So I, uh, I'm going to let the minister answer that uh, once he has an update on the school year uh, next week, I believe. Uh, but I know that it's important that uh, no matter what happens, we're able to provide uh, quality education to our students. And, and I know even just earlier this week, there was a memo sent out to school boards across the province uh, urging urging them to uh, use uh, to use resources and assistant positions as well uh, to support students as much as possible through through innovative ways. I mean, even, uh, you know, the ubiquitous Zoom or or online learning uh, is taking off and we need to make sure that that support uh, is being brought wherever possible. Niagara West MPP Sam Osterhoff, the Parliamentary Assistant to the Minister of Education. Really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in the hardest working man in the radio business. Uh, you just heard him do the news, and uh, but he's also a football guy, and he is a sports guy, and his name is Rick Zamperin, and he joins me now from the world headquarters of 900 CHML. Sir, how are you today? I'm fine. How are you? I am well. You know, you, I think, are the only person still uh, still occupying the 900 CHML universal headquarters down at the corner of Longwood and Maine. <laughs> There's a handful of um, us. Are there? Well, I know yeah. Ted Michaels finally just threw in the towel and said, I'm taking some time off. So it's you and it's um, Diana. Yep. Paul and, Paul um, and Shona. Paul and Shona. Yeah. See, there you go. The, the uh, Medals. People in war get purple hearts. You guys should get purple chorus Cs at the end of this thing. For uh, <laughs> I love it. For Yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely true. You guys should be doing this. Should be getting those things. Um, you are an NFL fan. You're a CFL fan. It's uh, the the... The lure that the tantalizing temptation of a season is hanging out there now that they've introduced the schedule. Before we get into the schedule, is this all a moot point, though? Is this discussion all moot because it doesn't matter? We're not going to have a season? Or do you believe the NFL will figure a way to make it happen? Uh, you know what? T- to be honest, it it will likely be moot. You know, the way things are going with the talk of a second wave with uh, I know that we're easing restrictions, but there's a lot of people still extremely nervous about going to any sort of event that attracts 
uh, a, a lot of people, and certainly NFL games would be on that list, whether it's the tailgate party before the game, during the game, uh, if you're not even at the stadium, going to a bar uh, or some kind of establishment to watch the game with other fans. I mean, all of that is now on the table and may not even be realized if things don't improve in terms of what public health officials uh, will deem to be safe. Um, having all, what so, about just players though? What about just players? We're just going to play and nobody's going to be a stands because their TV deal would let them do that. Definitely. The NFL, probably more than any other North American professional sports league would be well-equipped financially to play in front of empty stadiums, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, but, and the NBA has talked about this, the NHL has talked about this as well, playing in front of uh, empty ballparks or, or stadiums, MLB in this discussion as well. There's got to be testing from a player perspective, from the coaching perspective, throw in the officials, you know, the referees, uh, broadcasters, because these games are still going to be beamed to us on our TVs and, and, uh, and, and tablets and radios and whatnot. Uh, there has to be some sort of um, universal testing protocol that every person involved in this event on this particular day has to pass the test. And if they don't, now you have to trace who that person has been in contact with or any other uh, players or officials testing uh, positive. They have to be extremely careful with how they proceed uh, when it comes to testing. Well, and football, as much or more than any other sport, requires close contact. Every single play, you are contacting another person and so if you have even one case that's in the league that's diagnosed, you probably have to shut everything down again, which leads me to something that I've been wondering about. And I'm, I know this is nuts. I, I know this is nuts, Rick, but this is a sport in which guys are willing to risk CTE and brain injury and blown out knees and busted hands and futures where they can't necessarily walk properly or back degeneration or whatever else. I mean, these are guys who are willing to literally put it on the line to play. Could you put something in front of them and say, look, we're going to test everyone at the start of this, but we want you to sign a waiver that you may get coronavirus as a result of playing because we can't guarantee your safety. If you choose not to play, that's fine. But if you choose to play, here's the waiver. Let's go. Could that ever happen? I think it might happen. I, I think that's a real possibility because the league is going to want to protect itself. Um, uh, the officiating crew, which is a totally different uh, association or union, will want to protect itself. So I think, and I think from the players' perspective too, they should understand that. Uh, listen, there's there's not only an inherent risk with playing the game, but now there's an inherent risk of getting a life potentially life threatening. Uh, disease. So uh, I think that waiver should be in there because it, it, it's transparent. Uh, I think it covers everyone's butt from a legal standpoint. I think it's almost a must. I don't know how you can do it without, because again, as soon as you leave the stadium and one person comes in contact with one person and it, it, like it, it would be, uh, unless you put everybody into a, in the whole league into a quarantine, and I don't know how you would possibly do that. I don't know how you can guarantee there would be no transmission in this. It's just a sport that doesn't lend itself to distance. You can't self-distancing in football is what really bad teams do on defense. 
<laughs> yes. And I'll say this, too. With states, uh, because we're talking about the NFL, with states curtailing a lot of their physical distancing restrictions, um, some states will be different than others. And some teams may not be able to play in their own home facilities. They might have to be forced to play uh, in another team stadium or at a neutral site. So that's another thing to consider when looking at, uh, you know, testing protocols and all that other stuff. All right, so let's just pretend for a moment here that we think there really will be a season. And I don't know if there will or not, but let's just pretend there will. Let's go down a few of these things that are on the schedule that came out the other day. Now, I know that the opponents a team is going to face are chosen well before the schedule is actually drawn up. So as much as six months or seven months ago, you knew what team, say, the Bills were going to be playing, what teams the Bills were going to be playing. You didn't know which week or what order or who's home or who's away, but you know what teams they're going to play. So I understand that this was all in place before Tom Brady decided to go to join the Buccaneers. But for heaven's sakes, could they not have made one exception to say, we're switching something up here so that opening night of the season, it's the Buccaneers versus the Patriots? Because that is the one game, I think, Rick, that every single football fan would probably do a pay-per-view to be able to watch that one. Yes, and the NFL had really four opportunities to put Buccaneers, Saints, in New Orleans in a primetime slot. And right now, it's slated as a 1 o'clock game. They could have done it as the season opener on uh, September 10th. Instead, they have Houston at Kansas City, which I understand. KC's the defending champs. That's great. But Tampa Bay against KC would have been unbelievable. Brady against the defending champs with a new team. They could have put Bucks versus Saints in the Sunday night contest. They have Cowboys and Rams in that slot. And they have two Monday nighters. The opening week of the NFL season, it's a doubleheader Monday night. They have Steelers at Giants, which is a horrendous Monday night game, and Titans at Broncos, <laughs> which should be a good game, but is not going to attract the viewers that would uh, you would get uh, with uh, Tom Brady against any other team. No, and, and and look, I think everybody who follows football wants to see Tom Brady face Bill Belichick because this has been the debate forever, is who made who? Was it Brady that made Belichick a great coach or Belichick made Brady a great quarterback? I, I, and I believe that it's, a, you know, it's both. It, it works. But nonetheless, people wanted to see the game for bragging rights. And it's a shame that that somehow didn't fall on the schedule. Yeah, and obviously that is based on, you know, certain divisions play certain divisions within and out of their conference. Uh, And it is, yes, uh, you know, from a fan perspective, I would have loved to see Brady versus Belichick. Maybe we'll get it next year because Brady has signed a multi-year contract with the Buccaneers. But it would have been great to see, if not week one, at least in year one. But I will say this, the Super Bowl this year is in Tampa Bay. Wouldn't it be extraordinary if the Buccaneers face the Patriots in the Super Bowl? I don't think it's going to happen, but man, oh man, what a storyline that would be. I'll tell you why it's not going to happen. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And I will say this, I, I am so confident of this that I would, I'm not a wagering man, but I would wager on this one. The team in the NFL that has the hardest schedule, strength of schedule, so teams how they did last year and wins and everything else, the team that has the hardest schedule this year is the New England Patriots. And I mean, look, I, I just, I, Brady's gone. They don't even know who's going to be their quarterback yet. They look like they're in a bit of a rebuild, as at least as much of a rebuild as the Patriots ever do. I can't possibly, Rick, see them winning that division again, let alone probably even going to the playoffs this year. It just, and going to the Super Bowl? No way. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. When you are, you know, up against uh, rising teams like the Bills, who've been bottom feeders for years, but they have assembled a really good defense. Their offense has gotten a lot better with Stephon Diggs at the receiver position. You have Lamar Jackson in Baltimore, the reigning MVP. You have Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City, the defending Super Bowl champs. Uh, a cluster of other secondary tier teams in the AFC. It is no way going to be a cakewalk for the Patriots at all because without Brady, right now it's Jared Stidham who's thrown just a handful of passes in the National Football League, and then it's Brian Hoyer at quarterback. So New England still has a good defense. They have some tools on offense, not nearly as dangerous as some of the other teams in the NFL, let alone the AFC. Uh, So, yeah, it's going to be tough sledding for the Pats. I would predict that they are not going to make the playoffs in 2020. Uh, yeah, you may actually be the fourth string quarterback there. I mean, I, I don't know. There's, they're still looking. I mean, it's, it's no. I, I would think that other than diehard fans, nobody's even heard of Stidham, and no, very few people have even heard of Hoyer. I mean, you're talking now from going with the greatest quarterback in the history of football to a collection of who's that, and and this this you know when I said we want to see Belichick versus Brady to see who made who, maybe we don't have to see that. Maybe just the, if Bill Belichick can get one of those guys to play at a high level, we say, well, there you go, Bill Belichick, you did it. Because uh, I can't picture it. I really can't. Yeah, I can't see it too. The, the other interesting thing to me, aside from you know not being able to see New England versus Tampa Bay, was that at least the Buccaneers got five primetime games. Uh, the most they've ever had in a season, I think, was one. So there's the Tom Brady uh, factor. Now they have five this season. Uh, and the Las Vegas Raiders, not the Oakland Raiders, not the LA yes. Raiders, the Vegas Raiders, also have five primetime games. Um, this is a team that has one winning season in their last 17 years. And obviously the NFL wants to, you know, pump the uh, the Las Vegas machine. Um, five primetime games for the Raiders. I mean, they're going to be an okay team, uh, but they're going to be a primetime whipping boy uh, for the NFL this year. When I hear five primetime games for Brady and the Buccaneers, you know what immediately goes through my head? Brady is going to be injured in the very first game, and those are going to be five horrendous <laughs> oh, televised no. games. Uh, you know, Murphy's <laughs> Law does exist. All right, so the Patriots get the hardest schedule in the entire NFL, which I don't think there's a whole lot of people weeping and gnashing of teeth because there's a lot of people who are sitting there going, it's about time, yeah. time for you guys to suffer. And I think if they go 3-13, and 13, there's not going to be a ton of people outside New England who are really sad about this. Am I wrong? Uh, I think there will be parades in the 31 other cities just <laughs> to celebrate the demise of the Patriots. So, okay. That is only part of the weirdness of the schedule, though, because the division the Patriots are in, uh, when you look at strength of schedule, Patriots have the hardest schedule in the league. The team that has the second hardest schedule in the league, the New York Jets, their division mate. Not a great team, by the way, and somehow they drew an impossible schedule this year. Number three on the list, hardest schedule, your favorites, the Miami Dolphins, Mm -hmm. a horrible team. And number five on the list of tough schedules the buffalo bills how does what now i mean there's math and algorithms and everything else but how does one division that's not even a good division i mean they've been okay but not even a great division. how does one division get four out of the five toughest slots in the entire nfl this is mind-boggling because for for the better part of two decades now the afc east has been the AFC least. It's been the laughingstock of the National Football League. And 
two of those four teams, the Jets and the Dolphins, really weren't that good last year either. So for them to get the second and third hardest schedule going into 2020, I cannot understand. But it goes back to who they play, and the divisions continue to rotate. So, uh, you know, one year the AFC East will be matched up against the NFC East, and then the following year it's the NFC South. And because of the teams in those divisions who have a lot of ebbs and flows in terms of wins and losses year over year, uh, those change. So it, it just happens that the Jets, Dolphins, and Bills My goodness. Uh, are going are gonna to be playing a lot of tough teams this year. The positive of this is that next year during the NFL draft, if they are drafting again from coaches' homes, we will be able to see a draft pick coming with a guy sitting on the toilet during a pick uh, in the live coverage with the Dolphins. Um, now, the flip side of this, so you've got the three AFC East, four AFC East teams that have the hardest schedule. The easiest schedule in the NFL, and this just seems completely unfair, mm-hmm. The Baltimore Ravens, yes. who last year probably should have won the Super Bowl or could have won the Super Bowl. They were right there. Now they get only three teams. They have only three teams to face this year that had 10 wins last year or more. I mean, this is this is like handing, this is like putting Mike Tyson at his prime in the ring against Betty White. Baltimore, I believe, lost only two games last year. And Lamar Jackson, the, the revelation came to play, was the league MVP. For them, uh, Pittsburgh has the second easiest schedule. The Cowboys have the third easiest schedule. Three teams that are probably looking at their schedule and thinking, wow, we're going back to the playoffs easily. Uh, interesting to note that the Cowboys and Steelers last year both missed the playoffs. Um, but for Baltimore, you know, to go... From the best record, and I mean, they could have won the Super Bowl, uh, to the easiest schedule from one year to the next. If you're an NFL schedule maker, you're probably thinking, well, how did that (laughs) come to play? I know that how they can, I remember reading a Peter King article in a Sports Illustrated years gone by and how they construct the schedule. There's something like 24,000 variations of it, and they break it down to about 2,000. And then there's a committee that picks the best handful, and then they vote on it. Uh, But Baltimore certainly is the big winner, and we haven't even played a game yet. You know, football is the one sport where uh, it becomes very difficult to predict too accurately because the chance of injuries to key players is higher than I think in any other sport. In fact, I know it's higher than any other sport. So Lamar Jackson goes down with an injury that completely turns on its head and no longer are you saying that Baltimore has this great run to the playoffs that said uh you know I mean other sports really make an effort to balance things it's not it's none of them are perfect but boy does it seem like Baltimore just really does seem like they won the lottery here Rick Zamper appreciate you doing this thanks for the time you got it the Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.